Isaiah. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. And the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your hearts shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall, sh- he shall show his indignation against his enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, thanks be to God. God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our worship so far this morning. Lord, thank you for our confession, Lord, of sin and faith. Lord, we thank you for the songs that we've sang. We thank you for the liturgy and the word that we've heard so far. Lord, we pray this morning as we move into worship through proclamation and through Eucharist, Lord, that you would be honored by our worship and that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the joys, and I think other pastors or preachers in the room would, would agree with this maybe, other, one of the joys and also challenges of preaching and teaching is really finding that right balance between Exposition, right? Because you want to treat the word rightly, but also applying it, right, to, to the people that you're preaching and teaching. Because, I mean, every church is different, right? Every church has their own culture and their own subculture. And so you want to make sure that they understand Scripture rightly. And for example, right, you know, just in regards to exposition and application, we rightly should always pay appropriate honor to the original context in which Scripture was written, right? Because this is how. Through the Spirit, God has inspired his word for us. But we also understand that through the incarnation of Christ, through his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, through the Spirit being poured out upon the church, that all of Scripture actually rises above its original context and points us towards the Lord Jesus in one way or the other but also points us to his fulfillment of redemptive history. It points us as well as to the subsequent meaning of all Scripture for God's people, his church. And so our text for today then, even while we should and we will consider some of the original context, it actually points us to something greater because of the revelation of Christ and the empowerment of his Spirit upon his people. And I think what we have within this text today is a very basic application of ecclesiology, which... For those that don't know that big fancy word, it's just simply the doctrine or the teaching of the church. What we have, I think, in these verses is a basic application, although there's more contained within this, the teaching of the church. 
And when read, when this passage is read within that light, this text really takes on a whole new meaning, if not multiple layers of meaning for us as God's people. And so what our text for this morning does is actually show us some of the promises that God actually provides for us within his church. And in verses 10 and 11, which are the first two verses here, in your, in your bulletin, it'll be right before where we read, for thus says the Lord. So verses 10 and 11, we read how God promises us both joy within his church, but also nourishment when we are part of the church, when we are uh, within the church and through his covenant people. So look there again, and we'll make our way through these verses. So in verse 10, we're just starting with joy. We see there in verse 10 a clear promise of joy for those who are part of the covenant community of God. So starting first, again, we want to pay right application to the context. So let's just understand the context so that way we can better understand how it relates to the church as a whole. Contextually, we know Isaiah is pre-exile. right? So, so they have not been sent off into Babylon and into Assyria yet. And so we understand that Isaiah here, when he brings up Jerusalem, rejoice with Jerusalem, he is talking about the actual city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not just important or a well-loved city, although it is, but it's also, for them, it is the city. It is the central center of their lives. It is the cultural center of their lives. It is the cultural and religious center of their life and their faith as a people. Jerusalem represents for them completely the promises of Yahweh. The land does, but Jerusalem even more so, because it's in Jerusalem where his glory dwells within the temple. It's where his glory dwells upon the altar. It's where they would travel to for the annual celebrations and feasts every year. But even as we've just seen over the last two weeks in Isaiah 65 and then the earlier part of 66 that we looked at last week, there has been a complete and utter rejection of the Lord. There has been a rejection of his covenant. There has been a rejection of his temple and a rejection of his altar where they have turned instead to other gods. And God told us in Isaiah 65... When we looked at that two weeks ago, he could no longer keep silent at this. And so he promises judgment. He promises exile. Jerusalem, their beloved city, would be completely laid waste. There would be mourning over the condition that Jerusalem would be left in. So this is the reason why, if you go back to the book of Nehemiah, why you read very early on that he weeps and is inconsolable for multiple days when he hears a report that the walls of Jerusalem and the gates of Jerusalem are still burned down and laid on the ground. But while there is judgment in this verse, there's also the promise of restoration. And as we read two weeks ago at the end of Isaiah 65, 8 and 9, we read that the Lord would not forsake his covenant, even though they had forsaken it, but that he would restore a remnant of his people. He tells us there in verses 8 and 9 of Chapter 65, he says, within a withered cluster of the grapes on the vine, there would be new wine found. There would be, as the Septuagint reads, there would be a single grape found within the cluster. And it would be preserved because there is blessing in it. And if you'll remember from last week, especially there in verse 2 of chapter 66, we saw that there were two particular sets of people that the Lord addresses in that verse, he addresses those who tremble at his word. And we saw that there were really two ways in which we could tremble at the word of God. We could tremble in humility and repentance. Or as we have seen throughout the book of Isaiah and their history, those that tremble, they don't tremble because they love the word of the Lord, but they tremble because they hate it. And so within this promise of restoration, this passage here in the latter half of chapter 66 is directed completely at those who love God and love his people, those who tremble in humility and repentance. They are the remnant. 
And notice here in verse 10, there are, there's twice where they are encouraged to rejoice. They're encouraged to rejoice because Jerusalem herself will have cause to rejoice because her days of mourning will have come to an end. Their present sorrow, the judgment and the coming exile into captivity, would be turned into joy, a return from captivity, and seeing the city restored to its former glory. So that's the context right, in which we come to this. But as we know, again, through the revelation of Christ, through the Spirit, there are new covenant truths that we should and rightly take from the, from the old covenant. And so, because at the end of the day, right, original context is good and helpful, but we are not pre-exile Israel. We're not this Israel. We're the church. We are the Israel of God in Christ in his new covenant. And so while Isaiah is speaking of the literal city of Jerusalem under the new covenant in Christ, as, as Chris preached just a few weeks ago in Eastertide, the dwelling place of God with his covenant people is in the new Jerusalem. It's within the church. And so it's here that the deeper meaning of this passage really begins to take shape because we can rightly understand the church in this way. Think of how Christ and the apostles described the church in the New Testament. We are, we're called the body of Christ. We're called the bride of Christ. We see even through the words of Jesus himself that the church is the extension of Christ and his ministry upon the earth as we are empowered by his spirit that is sent. And just as the spirit rested upon Jesus at his baptism, the spirit would then rest upon the church on the day of Pentecost, but also each and every one of us that have called on him in faith in our own little Pentecosts. The spirit guides us into all the truth of Christ and to who God is And continues the teaching ministry of Christ to the church, but also through the church, continues the teaching ministry of Christ to the world around it. And so what this text is, is a call to the remnant. It's a call to that single grape found within the withered cluster. Those that have come from Christ and are born from above through Christ. Those who truly love Jerusalem, who love the church, those who love the Lord who love his people, those who have trembled at his word and humbled themselves and repented, they are the church. They are the Jerusalem and the Israel of God. And so notice here in this verse the promise of joy that is found within the church here. We are to rejoice with and in the church, and we are to be glad. We rejoice with the church when she rejoices because we love her. We rejoice with the church because we love one another. We, we do this because we love that Christ has actually called us not only to himself but to each other. We rejoice with her in joy, but like we read here, we also mourn over, over her. We mourn like those who mourn over Jerusalem because of the desolation and the pruning that she was about to undergo. We mourn over the current state of the church. We mourn over her brokenness. We mourn because of those that we saw last week had usurped the name of brother, and they now call sin good and good sin. We mourn over those who have usurped the name of Christian, and by their false teaching, they lead many away from Christ. John Calvin writes here, he says, he says, all that love God and love his church, they love the church of God and they lay its interest very near to their hearts. And they admire the beauty of the church and they take pleasure in communion with the church and they heartily embrace her. And those that have a sincere affection for the church mourn for her and with her in all her griefs. But God also calls us to joy, right? That is the quality that we're looking at within this verse. He calls us to joy, and we find joy in the church even in the midst of mourning because the church has been restored in the person and work of Christ. 
Another commentator writes here in a long paragraph, but it's just beautiful, and I wanted to share it all. He writes this. He says, In all ages, there will be those in the church who love and mourn for her when they see the inroads of unbelief, when they see the inroads of indifference and immorality within her. And their cry goes up, How long? And God knows their mourning, and he comforts them with this command, Rejoice. And this is not an idle command, he writes. For if, their future, for if the future of the church depended upon man, there would be cause for mourning and none for rejoicing. However, since the future of the church depends upon the covenant of God, those who mourn may indeed joy in the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. For God himself is within the midst of her. We have joy in the church and we have joy within one another because God has not forsaken his covenant. And instead, he has restored us to himself in the person and work of Christ. But also within these first two verses, we see that the Lord promises not just joy within the church, but he promises us nourishment within the church. Look again at verse 11. He says this. That you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, and that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. So this is the first time that we actually, we're kind of, we're coming across an imagery that God is using, referring to really the motherhood of God in some ways, right? This, this idea of the nourishment of a mother, right? So this is the first time we're reading it, but actually in verses 7, 8, and 9, right before this, God actually uses this the first time, again. So, but, but trying to understand this motherhood aspect as it relates to the church, one church father, and most of you probably know this quote the moment I say his name, his name is Cyprian. He has this famous quote that rubs some Protestants extremely the wrong way, and it's this. The one, you cannot have God for your father if you do not have the church for your mother. That bothers a lot of Protestants, and rightly so, right? Because our Roman friends have have probably taken this a little too far. But considering how God lays out these, these verses here, I think Cyprian has a point, and I don't think he's wrong in this quote. Because what we have in these first two verses, in 10 and 11, the Lord will go on in verses 12 and 13 really to blend. He'll blend how both he and his church function with one another to nourish the body and bride of Christ. And so within this entire verse, within verse 11 here, the Lord uses this illustration of a nursing infant to illustrate for us the nourishment that he provides us, but also the nourishment that his covenant people provide for one another. And at the same time, we cannot separate this nourishment from the joy that we just looked at in verse 10. Because verse 11 shows us the reason for the joy and rejoicing of verse 10. The Hebrew words that are used here for nursing could also be understood as to drain out with delight. So consider this as applied to those who tremble in humility and repentance of God's word. Those who mourn over the state of Jerusalem and who mourn over the breaking of the covenant And also those, at least within the context, that are facing the reality of the coming exile. Because after the exile, they are able to come back to Jerusalem and partake to drain out with delight Jerusalem's restored abundance. And they are able to rejoice in the joy that she is now able to offer. But the second half of this verse, it's also a parallel clause that expresses the same truth, right? You may nurse and be satisfied, but also that you may drink drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. It expresses the same truth, but also it expresses to us that the kind of consolation that we find 
within one another and in the church cannot be found outside the covenant people of God. Let me explain. This is not because the church in itself has any power or authority to bestow blessing, but it is because the church has been empowered through the Spirit of Christ and through Christ to bestow His nourishment and blessing upon the covenant community. So when we come to faith in Christ, yes, we are fed by our own individual reading of Scripture. We're fed as we pray by ourselves and we have our own, to use a Protestant term, quiet times with the Word. But in a more healthy and holistic way, we are nourished by the church. And we are nourished by one another because we are trained with one another in the fear and instruction of the Lord. When we are baptized, we are baptized, yes, into Christ, but we are baptized also into his body. We're baptized into the covenant community. The church is there to feed us and to care for us and to offer us a place to come and to drink deeply with delight. Matthew Henry, a pastor in the 17th century, he encourages us to take part in the church's comforts. He writes this, he says, The word of God, the covenant of grace, the promises of the covenant, the ordinances of God, and all of the opportunities of attending to God and conversing with him are found in the bosom of the church, where her comforts are laid up and where by faith and prayer they are drawn. And so we must drink from these and be nourished and be satisfied. So we are nourished by the church and we are nourished by the joy of the church. But God also, in verses 12 and 13, promises us peace within the church and comfort within the church. Starting in verse 12, we read this. He says, Behold, he says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. So I'm just going to go through these two verses really in their clauses because it's helpful to do it this way. Because in low areas, when you're thinking about rivers, in low areas, where, especially where, where the ground is dry and arid, right? there's, there's not a whole lot of rain in, place, in certain places of the world. And so a river can literally mean the difference between life and death, right? To, to NASA nerd it up for a moment, right? When, when, I mean, not that, not that there's any, we're not going to get it off into this too much, but when people are looking for life on other planets, right, they're always looking for water, right? Yeah, so because where there is water, there is life. That is the whole idea. <laughs> and there are two places, there are two places in Scripture where we read that the river from the throne of God is the river of life. In Ezekiel 47, and we may look at this in our Sunday school study. I don't know what Chris has planned there. But in Ezekiel 47, verses 1 to 12, we read that wherever the river of life flows, trees will fruit year-round and their leaves will never wither. We are also told that the fruit will be for food and their leaves will be for healing. And then mirroring that in Revelation 22, where Walton preached the week after Chris, we see that the river gives the water of life. And on each side of that river stands a single tree, and it is the tree of life. And that single tree gives fruit all year long. And now this sounds an awful lot to me like the beginning of the Psalter in Psalm 1, where we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then in verse 3, he writes, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaves never wither, and all that he does he prospers. And so thinking about this peace and this peace of God like a river in relation to the nourishment and joy of the church, 
We see that God not only gives us from his word, but also his church, this nourishment. And we, we still live. And while we still live in a fallen world and we still we understand that we don't have year-round abundance, right? We, there are sometimes there are seasons of drought and there are seasons of suffering. But what we read here, this gives us, this means that when we are in the church, and that doesn't mean right now where we are physically in the church, but when we are part of the church, when we do not forsake the meeting of one another, as we've learned just over the last couple of years, we're all very prone to do really easily. When we avail ourselves of the covenant community of God that he has placed us in, we are continually nourished by the peace of the church. And as we drink from the river of life, that water of life that wells up inside of us into eternal life, as Christ told the Samaritan woman in John 4. Again, Matthew Henry writes here, and he says, The gospel brings with it, wherever it is received in, in its power, such peace as this, which shall go out like a river, supplying souls with all good and making them fruitful as a river does the lands it passes through. God has poured out his spirit of peace upon the covenant people so that through the power of his spirit we will find peace among one another. But we also notice in this verse that this stream isn't just a slow trickle, right? If you've ever gone into the woods after a rain and you see that you know there's a little low area where there is a stream when it rains, there's a slow trickle every now and then. Or if you go up to East Tennessee, some of these, some of these little streams, there's a little bit of water coming through. The, the stream is not a, a slow trickle. It is overflowing. It is an overflowing torrent. He says, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. Throughout Israel and in many Middle Eastern and even North African countries, there are small streams known as wadis. If you've ever been to Ethiopia, especially during the dry season, you, you kind of get a feel for this as well. Because these wadis remain virtually dry until it finally rains, until the rainy season finally shows up. Where these little streams don't just fill up, but they actually overflow. So notice how this clause really indicates to us a prosperity of peace within the church. The fact that this river, this stream is overflowing, it tells us not only of the abundance of God's peace and blessing upon his people, but also its continuance. For a river or a stream to overflow, there has to be a flow. There has to be a continual current. The imagery that the Lord uses here signifies for us that there is a never-ending supply for his peace. And the peace that we find in the covenant community is never interrupted. But also notice in this same clause that this peace extends outwards from the church. He says, The glory of the nations like an overflowing stream... Under the new covenant of Christ, people from every tribe and tongue and nation are called to him to be part of his covenant community and his covenant people. There are currently, I just, I Google searched, so if I'm wrong on this, then I looked at the wrong source, right? But there are currently 193 nations in existence today on the planet. And I was just curious, so I started looking, um, because one thing, especially in, in the Protestant world, and it may just be the case in, in the entire Christian world, we're always curious about how many people have not heard of Christ. And so one source is called the Joshua Project, and they did the math, and I didn't check their math because I'm horrible at math, but they did the math and, and found out that apparently there's at least 42.5% of the world have not heard of Christ. Now, again, I don't know if they're right or not. If I did the math, it would read like 8,000% because I'm really that bad at math. But we'll take them on good faith that they know what they're doing. But what this does... This illustrates for us that the church, through Christ and through the Spirit, 
it's still expanding. It's still spreading far and wide like an overflowing stream. And the peace of God pours out of the covenant people of God as an overflowing torrent to bring the glory of Christ to the nations. And then this final clause, then it reminds us again one more time of this nourishing work of the church and of one another within each of our lives. He he says this, he writes, And you shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip. Because the peace and prosperity of God overflows from his covenant people, God is again calling us to nurse upon the nourishment and joy that he offers us through himself and through his people so that the church can be a blessing among the nations. And then verse 13 builds upon this principle. It goes on and and, and the Lord says here, he says, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So in the church, God not only promises us peace, but also the comforting love of a mother toward her children. We are comforted in Jerusalem. We're comforted in the church. We rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Paul encourages us in Romans 12. But there's a subtle change in this verse that has not happened yet in these few verses. And I don't, you may not have picked it up. The only reason I picked it up is because I've been looking at this passage all week long. Right? So if you didn't pick it up, that's fine. But there's a subtle change in the language. Because so far in verses 10, 11, and 12, God has been referring to us as nursing infants. But now in verse 13, he kind of moves on to growth and adulthood. And we see this really in the Hebrew more than in the English. In the Hebrew, there's a word that begins this verse, and it's the word ish, which is the Hebrew word for man. So other than growth, now, and this is not the word, you would think, well, that doesn't make a big deal, but it really does because when he refers to infants, he uses a separate word. This is not the same word as man. And so other than growth, which we'll see down in the final verse, the Lord is stressing to us that sometimes even adults need the comfort and assurance of their mother. Isaac brings Rebekah to Rachel. Bathsheba will give advice to Solomon in 1 Kings. Again, Cyprian says, You cannot have God for your father if you don't have the church for your mother. God's reminder here is that a mother's love for her children remains constant throughout life. And God is telling us that his comfort for his covenant people does not end with childhood but continues throughout all of our lives. And he says, you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You will be comforted in the church among the covenant people of God like a mother continuing to love and to care for her children. Calvin says that we could view this as the church restored. This is the church restored who is discharging her duties with happiness and gladness. He says that this makes God the author of our joy, but the church is God's handmaid, carrying out the duty to dispense of that joy. God, through the church, comforts those who are his as a mother comforts her own children. But then finally in this last verse, This whole passage is a message of hope, especially for the original hearers of it that were about to be exiled into Babylon. But this message of hope also reminds us of our own reality that the church also exists in exile. Listen to what he says here in this final verse. He says, you shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. The language of this verse, it really draws our attention to the fact that this whole passage is very future-oriented. 
In this one verse alone, God uses the word shall five times. And it really indicates this future reality. He says, you shall see, your heart shall rejoice, you shall flourish. In the final three verses, in 10, 11, and 12, he uses other future, excuse me, 12, 12, 13, and 14. He uses other future-oriented words. He says, I will extend my peace. You shall nurse, you shall be carried, you shall be comforted. So while God nourishes us in the church and comforts us in the church and even grows us in the church, we have to live with the reality that we still live in a fallen world. We still live in exile. We still, for a time, must exist within Babylon. But at the same time, there is a clear indication in this final verse that, like the last two weeks, there's a difference between those who have trembled in humility and those who have trembled in hate at God's word. There is illustrating for us here both the coming salvation and the coming judgment. God says, he says, you shall see, he tells us, emphatically stressing to us that there is no doubt that there is God, that God is working among his people, providing the church with the power and authority to nourish and to comfort and to extend its peace to one another. Again, Calvin tells us here, he says, believers should embrace this prediction with full faith and patiently endure for a time the barrenness of the church. We shall see the hand of God working through the nourishment, peace, and comfort of the church in our hearts We'll be glad and we will rejoice. But he also tells us your bones will flourish like the grass. We are being encouraged that even in exile, there is life and health and growth to be found among the covenant people of God. Daniel knew this well. His companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, knew this well. Even Esther and Mordecai knew that there was encouragement and growth to be found among the covenant people of God. Just because the church is in exile does not mean that the hand of God is not working within his people, calling them to himself through the care and the nourishment and the peace and the comfort and the joy of the church. And he says here, closing out, he says, The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and show indignation against his enemies. As we've read, God fully manifests himself to his people, and they will know that it is him who has preserved them and who has saved them, and who has brought them through the exile. He will no longer conceal himself, but will openly show how great his kindness is for his people. One commentator writes here, he says, If if therefore for a time the enemies of God have the superiority, and and they pursue their lawless course without being punished, and even if we appear to be overlooked by God and destitute, do not despair. For the time will come when the Lord will reveal himself and will rescue his people from his enemies. And this is our final encouragement from Isaiah. It reminds us of our already not yet reality. This has been accomplished in Christ. But we continue to still live in the midst of Babylon. Where some people usurp the name of brother. Where true believers in Christ are persecuted and cast out for the sake of the name of the Lord. And where the church lives in exile. But even still we have hope. Because Christ has come. And Christ has died. And Christ has been resurrected. And Christ will come again. So until then, we can rejoice in the church. We should mourn and weep over her current state. But we need to also run to her. Run to the loving comfort and nourishment that God provides us through his covenant community. And do it by covenanting yourself with him and with his people. 
and you shall see and your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants.